like I said, Book of Deuteronomy can be a bit scary, right? It can be a bit scary, but I don't think it needs to be, okay? If I'm honest, for a long time I didn't read much of the Old Testament, particularly the Pentateuch, because it just seemed like it was a book full, books full of a bunch of rules and a bunch of laws, and now we're on the other side of Jesus, and who cares, right? I don't need to, I, can, I have you know, clothing that's, you know, it might be made of two different types of fabric. If I really wanted to, I suppose I could, uh, you know, boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. You know, like, sorry, that's just an obscure law there. Sorry, anyway, I, I'm not saying I do that or should do that. I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> sorry, I've like derailed already. Um, no, all that to say was that I didn't particularly find the Old Testament and particularly, again, the, the, the first five books, what's called the law, the Torah, or the Pentateuch, I didn't find them all that compelling. And then over time, I began to experience the Old Testament. And, you know, it's kind of like one of those you start to dip your toes in and you go like, oh, that's not, that's not so bad, right? That, okay, once I get it, it's not so bad, right? You know, and then there comes that point where, like, you know, you get into your waist and then you're like, oh, you know, like, it's really cold. But then, like, you kind of go like, okay, but now I'm okay. I'm starting to feel it. I'm starting to be able to swim, right? And that's my hope for you guys is that maybe even, too, you'll be like me. You'll start to dip your toes into the Old Testament and find, actually, it is incredible. The heart of God that we see on display is incredible. And we find that the purpose of the Old Testament, in many ways, is the same as the purpose of the New Testament. The Old Testament was there to invite us, as A.J. Culp says and as our series says, to invite us to know God. Right? I mean, what are the Gospels there for if not to know Jesus? To know who he is, to know what he's like. Scripture is all about an invitation to know God and more than just information about him, but to know him relationally. And so therefore, one of the primary purposes of Scripture, and this is what uh, Culp says in another one of his works, you're going to find I really like him uh, as an author. So you'll probably hear me quote him a few times because he did some work um, I discovered him while doing my master's dissertation. It, like, my mind just like, exploded as I was reading his stuff, and I was like, this is amazing. So you're probably going to hear me quote him quite a bit. But he says, one of the primary purposes of Scripture is to produce a world for the faithful to live in. What does he mean by that? What he means by that is this. Scripture is not just a mine of information. Right? I don't just go to scripture with a pickaxe and just use it as a, you know, and, and mine for information, for random facts. For some of you, you're like, I would never do that anyway. Um, but for some of us who like facts, that can be a temptation. Right? So whichever one you're on, right? it is not a mine for information. But maybe, maybe your temptation isn't to mine it for information. Maybe you're more like the verse of the day person. And it's more than just merely a thought for the day. Instead, what Scripture is, and this is what I think Colt is getting at, it is the foundational story that you and I build our life upon, and not only build our life upon it, but imagine ourselves in it. That's the purpose of Scripture, right? It gives us a frame for understanding the world. And let's not pretend that there aren't other competing frames competing for your loyalty, for your uh, allegiance, right? 
There are many other things in this world that try and give us a framework for living that say, this is the good life. This is how you really want to live. If you just have this or you just have that, right? You think about every advertising campaign ever, right? You look at an ad if there were still magazines or, you know, you look at like an ad on, on websites for like, you know, the stupidest things, you know, some sort of like, I don't know, Himalayan throw. And what are they doing? They're at peace. They're resting. You know, again, like I heard somebody say once, like, unless they're like, you know, unless it's an ad for a car, basically, you know, or, or some sort of alcoholic drink, everything it shows is people at peace resting. It promises, you know, the, what does the Bible promise? What does Jesus promise? Peace. Everything else is trying to give you a framework and saying, if you just have all of these things, then you will be at peace, right? If you have that Himalayan throw, if you have, you know, that foot massager, if you have that, you know, the, the back scratcher that you've always wanted, if you have this new hat, you know, what? I don't know. Then you'll be at peace. You'll be at rest. Life will be good. And so what Scripture does is it gives us that framework to imagine a different way. And so when I use imagine, like, see it that way. Like, this is like how we understand the world. So scripture is the foundational story that we build our life on and imagine ourselves in. And this is where I think Deuteronomy becomes incredibly important. All right. So we have now like seen it at its like, you know, the huge like meta level. Can I use that word? Is that okay? Meta level. Like we're looking at it right now. We're going to like come down one step and we're just going to kind of introduce the book of Deuteronomy. What is it? If it's not a book of just rules and laws, if it's not just simply some sort of weird travelogue, and if you've ever read the book of Deuteronomy, then you know the first four chapters read like a travelogue, okay? If it's not just some weird travelogue, then what is it? What is the book of Deuteronomy? Well, again, we've established its intention is so that we may know God. It's an invitation to know God, and it helps us to see how to know God in many, I think, really helpful ways, even for us on this side of Jesus. So the first thing we need to understand is this. Deuteronomy is firstly a sermon. All right, let's, let's open up Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Okay, it's not going to be up on the screen. I'm just going gonna, gonna to read it for us out of the New Living Translation. Uh, so you can look it up on your phones if you have your Bible. Uh, Deuteronomy, it's... it's <coughs> sorry. Uh, it's pretty close towards the beginning of your Bible. While you look it up, I'm going to cough again. I'm not dying, I promise. <laughs> no, I guess we're all dying, but yeah, anyway. Um, not of a cough, anyway. Um, so, so, yeah, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. So this is how it reads. These are the words that Moses spoke to all the people of Israel. So he's speaking this, right? Just like I'm speaking to you now, except I don't pretend to be Moses. All right? Uh, These are the words that Moses spoke to all the people of Israel while they were in the wilderness east of the Jordan River. They were camped in the Jordan Valley near Suf, between Paran on one side and Tophel, Laban, Hatzerot, and Daitzahab on the other. My best guess. Normally... It takes only 11 days to travel from Mount Sinai, or your version may say Mount Horeb, same place, to Kadesh Barnea, going by way of Mount Seir. 
But 40 years after the Israelites left Egypt, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses addressed the people of Israel, telling them everything the Lord had commanded him to say. This took place after he had defeated King Sihon of the Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon, and Edrei had defeated King Og of Bashan, who ruled in Ashtaroth. While the Israelites were in the land of Moab, east of the Jordan River, Moses carefully explained the Lord's instructions as follows. Now, already that's starting to sound like a boring travel. You're like, I don't know who Sihon of Og is, nor do I care. You know, like, I don't know where, you know, like, look, I mean, I don't have any idea, to be honest with you, where Dait Zahab is, right? And so you, you already start to, like, zone out, right? Am I right? Maybe some of you, like, we got five verses in and you were like, I'm done, okay? These are significant, these are significant places, and in fact, Moses zooms in, and we're going to get to this later, but Moses zooms in on three places. Mount Sinai, or again, your, your version may read Mount Horeb, Kadesh Barnea, and Moab. Okay? These three places are going to be extremely important as we open up the book of Deuteronomy. So again, I said, firstly, it's a sermon. And it's a sermon about, how, about God's love and how then the people should love God, right? We'll get to Deuteronomy 6, 8 eventually, right? You know, like, uh, we'll get to, uh, you know, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And then later, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Okay, these will, we will get to those things. But I think what we're seeing then is this sermon is all about God's love and how people then should love God. And so in many regards, I think it's similar to the Gospels. It's not all that different from the Gospels, right? Because what do we see in the Gospels? We see an account of how God, through Jesus, has acted in history to demonstrate his love for his people, for humanity. How he's acted in history through grace towards people who did nothing to earn it. Guys, that is the story of Deuteronomy 1-4. God showing his incredible grace to people who do not deserve it. You don't have to go all the way to the New Testament before you run into God's incredible grace. It's right here on full display in, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 1. And even before that too, but just saying, we see it. Okay? The other thing I'll say is this. These are the last words of Moses. We're going to find out uh, as we continue to, you know, if, if you, look, we're not going to read all four chapters here. I, my sermon would, you know, you guys would hate me forever if I, like, <laughs> read all four chapters and then had a full sermon, okay? We're not going to do that. I would honestly, I would encourage you. It's a story, okay? After today, read the first four chapters of Deuteronomy, all right? Because we're just going to be skipping around here, seeing, seeing some things, all right? So what we find in, in the book of Deuteronomy <clears throat> is we find that Moses is told, you're not going to enter the land. Like, this is it for you, buddy. Like, this is the end. <laughs> All right? So get ready. And, and Moses says, uh, you find this in chapter 3, starting at verse 21. <coughs> All right? Um, that Moses was like, uh, you know, hey, look, guys, I'm not going to see the land. I don't get to. God got mad at me, and you know what? This is just the way it is. Okay, I'm not going to get to go into the promised land. 
right? And then God says, but you know what? I still love you, Moses. Go up on Mount, uh, what is it? Mount Pisgah and look over the land in every direction, right? And he gives Moses permission to see the land before he dies, okay? So these are Moses' last words, right? And, and if you knew these were going to be the last words you spoke, you know, if you had like, you know, you've got like the next, I don't know however long it took him to speak Deuteronomy. You know, you've got like four hours with a group of people and you get to say whatever you want for those four hours. You know, like, you're going to make it count, right? Especially if they're people you care about and you love and you want the best for them, you're going to make sure your last words matter. And so Moses here does not waste his words. He makes his words matter. He delivers a farewell sermon to the people. Moses elaborates then, and he helps to further explain the law, which really just means teaching or instruction. We think of like penal law codes all the time, you know, like I can't go, I can only go 100 kilometers an hour on this road, or, you know, we think of it in terms of that, right? But think of when you hear the word law in the Old Testament, think of instruction, right? Like teaching or instruction. Right? And so Moses expands on these instructions that God has given so that the people will see the heart behind it and the character of the giver of this law, this instruction. All right, we'll keep flying. So we've got, it's a sermon, it's the last sermon, and the last words of Moses. But interestingly enough, now, guys, I, I, I realize this is going to get kind of nerdy fast. I don't think any of us are probably experts on Hittite treaties. Okay, I'm just going to throw that out there. It's a probably, I think, a fairly good guess. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy not only reads like a sermon, it reads the, the same structure as a Hittite treaty. And you're like, okay. You'll, again, now you're thinking about slowly backing out the door as I'm starting to talk about Hittite treaties. Okay, here's what you need, here's what you need to understand. Nations make treaties with each other. We know that, right? Nations often break treaties with each other, but they make treaties with each other, okay? Now, those treaties are usually based on, like, mutual, like, let's not kill each other, let's not, you know, like, or, you know, like, saying, you know, maybe from one power to another, one that has way more power, and this is probably typical, you know, one that has the upper hand that says, like, I tell you what, we'll back off if you, X, Y, and Zed, because I'm in Ireland, right? <clears throat> if you do these things, then we will we'll go easy on you, or things will be fine for you. And that's the way the Egyptians, and that's the way the Assyrians made treaties. They said, look, you step out of line, and we will crush you. But as long as you stay in line, things will go okay for you, right? So they used intimidation, and they used fear as a motivation. They used threat as a motivation, <clears throat> Maybe some of you are like, it sounds like my parents. I don't know. Um, sorry. <laughs> uh, but here's the thing about God and about Hittite treaties. They were different because they used loyalty and love and blessing as a motivator. Now, that's not saying the Hittites were wonderful people. They weren't. Okay? But their trees that they made with other nations tended to be more like... Uh, more around the idea of, of loyalty through devotion and reminded the people. So one of the things that they did was they would remind the people of past benevolence. See how nice we've been to you. We'll continue to be that nice. Just stay in line and you know what? Things are going to go great for you 
We care about you. Now, I would say with the Hittites, I'm not sure I trust them. But with God, this is patterned in a similar way. All right? So here's what I think, why I think that's important. Okay? We're done talking about Hittite treaties, except to say this. Deuteronomy shows that the relationship between God and his people was never meant to be one of just fear and intimidation that says, if you step out of line, I will crush you. But rather, it was one of love. It says, I care for you. I love you. I want things to go well for you. And so, you know, this question that maybe the Israelites would have asked, why should we follow God? In 437, chapter 4, verse 37, we read Moses saying this, because he loved your ancestors, he chose to bless their descendants, and he personally brought you out of Egypt with a great display of power. And maybe if you want to put this in New Testament language, we could think of 1 John, where John says, we love because he first loved us. It's a similar sort of thing, where Moses is saying, look and see, over these four chapters as I tell this story, look and see how God has shown you love. Now go forward and show that same love to other people. All right? But this is more than just treaty language, okay? Because, right, a, tr a treaty is between two nations. It's, um, you know, political. But what really is happening here? And we've, we saw it, and again, if you read the story, you will find that the people of Israel stood at Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, and they received and entered into a covenant relationship with God. This is more than just politics. This is interpersonal. Two people or, you know, entering into an agreement with one another, or in this case, between God and his people. What we see in Deuteronomy and the gospel of Jesus is that we and, and God's people have always covenanted with God. We have chosen to intertwine ourselves with God. And God has chosen to intertwine himself with us, which is a pretty crazy thought, actually, that we, could, we won't dive into today, but a very interesting one, right? This covenant, however, is not one motivated by fear and ending in slavery. And this is why I think it's important, right? You've got a group of people that just came out of slavery as an oppressed people group. It is instead a covenant of love ending in freedom. <clears throat> and so here's what we see. God is not hidden. And this is one of the things I think that's really incredible that we see in the book of Deuteronomy. God does not hide himself from the people of Israel. God does not hide himself from you and me. Instead, he wants to be known. In Deuteronomy, God is giving his people this kind invitation to know him. And he gives us that same invitation. And so he does this through four primary methods in Deuteronomy. And this is our four-week overview of Deuteronomy. There it is. 
So this morning, we're looking at the first one, memory, right? Memory, the idea of remembering, okay? And that's where we're going the rest of the weeks, right? We're not going to talk about it now, worship, law, covenant, all of those things. We're going to dive into each one of those because the book of Deuteronomy deals with each one of them significantly. But this morning, we're focusing in on memory as a means of knowing God. All right? So one of the things that I want to say is, again, we could be really quick to say, yeah, okay, God invited them to know him, but what does that have to do with me? Because, well, Jesus, right? What do I have to do with the people of Israel? What do I have to do with any of this? And so I think it's actually important that the book of Romans, chapters 9 to 11, come into this. And and as part of this, this is a big, complicated argument that I am not going to try and touch right now. Okay, but couched within these chapters that are not always the easiest to understand, um, but couched within this, we find Romans chapter 11, verse 17. And, and it sits even within this argument about Israel and the place of Israel in God's people. It sits within an argument then about how Gentiles should live humbly. And Paul says this. Some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Here's why I quote that. The story that's recounted in Deuteronomy chapter 1 and 4, 1 to 4, it's our story too. These are now our people. These are who we identify with. Right? These are now our relatives. We have been adopted, as Paul will elsewhere say. We are now part of the family. We've been grafted into the tree. It's now our family tree as well. And so the stories that we read in the Old Testament, they are our stories too. We don't need to unhitch ourselves, distance ourselves from the Old Testament. No, the God of the Old Testament who is full of love and kindness and grace is the same God that shows up in Jesus Christ. Like we are part of God's family. And so I said Deuteronomy is not simply a weird travelogue. But this section is a travelogue, right? Chapter 1 to 4. It is a deliberate travelogue that brings us to key events in Israel's history from the Exodus until the present sermon that Moses is speaking now. All right? So he doesn't go all the way back to them, you know, leaving uh, Egypt. He doesn't go all the way back to the Passover. He doesn't go all the way back to the crossing of the Red Sea. All right? So all of that happens, all right? But where Moses picks up in Deuteronomy is by saying, And now here's what happened after that. All right? So this is the story from once they crossed over the Red Sea up until the present time as they're preparing 40 years later to go into the the promised land. And so this travelogue brings us to key events. I said those three places that we read about in the first five verses are incredibly important. Because they are key, decisive events in Israel's history. It brings us to these moments of decision where the people of God had to decide what they were going to do and where they, you know, what direction they were going to go. 
And so it brings us to these places, <coughs> these moments of decision that I think demonstrate for us God's character. And they demonstrate for us the character of Israel. And if I think I'm honest, our character as well sometimes. It exposes us for who we are as well. Because we're often, I think, a lot more like the Israelites than we want to admit, right? Because they're always the guys messing up, you know, when you read the Old Testament, right? So we don't want to identify with them, but I think if we're really honest, their story is very similar to our story and as humans in general. And so let's take a few minutes. Let's look at these three key places, all right? So the first one is Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. The second one is Kadesh Barnea. And the third one is Moab. So, Mount Horeb, we find the story uh, you know, of Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, from chapter 1, verse 6, all the way to verse 18. So that's a pretty short one, right? What happened? Okay, we're just going to give a really brief what happened at each one of these places. That is where the people of Israel received the covenant, where Moses went and got the Ten Commandments, right? It's where the people said, we will follow God. We, can, we will covenant to be God's people. And God said, that's great. You are my people. And a covenant happened, it entered into where the people of Israel became God's chosen people at that moment. The people who were to be a light to the nations, who were to, who were to fulfill the promise that God made to Abraham, that through him all the nations would be blessed. The people of Israel raised their hand and said, yes, we will be the blessing to the nations. We will be God's people we will be who you want us to be. We will follow you. We will intertwine ourselves with you. And in that we see God's grace, right? Because we learn in that story. They didn't do anything to deserve it. They were just a little group of people enslaved in Egypt. They didn't do anything to deserve it. And God says, look, he says that to them. You're not really all that special. I just love you. And I was like, you're going to be my people. You're going to be my special people. Not because you're special, but because I'm going to choose you. Not because there's anything better. You know, you're not better than anybody else. But simply because I love you. And this, then, is where the people covenanted with God and received the law. Kadesh Barnea. What happened there? All right? So... What does it say here in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse, what is it like, verse, uh, one of the very first verses here. Yeah, verse 2. Normally it only takes 11 days to travel from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. Right? So 11 days. So we're like 11 days later. They've reached Kadesh Barnea. And it's like, Moses is like, all right, guys. It's time to go into, it's time to go into the promised land. Let's do this. And then they get a little bit, you know, maybe the feet get a little bit cold. And they say, well, you know, maybe it might be a good idea if we send out some spies to have a look at the land, see how it is. You know, like, what are the people like? We don't know. Um, it might be a good battle strategy. I don't know. And, and Moses kind of goes like, not the worst idea. All right, choose 12 people. The 12 guys go into the land. They spend 40 days in the land. And they come back. And right, if you know the story, 10 of them were like, no way, not going, not going to do it, can't happen. <laughs> like, these people are way too big, way too strong. There's way too many of them. Forget it. Let's go back to Egypt. 
And two of them said, actually, I don't think it's that bad. God's with us. We can do it. Caleb and Joshua are their names. Right? And they'll become significant later in, you know, as we read the Old Testament. But uh, at this point, we'll just say they're the two good spies, you know, uh, the guys who, who trust God, who say, we can do this. And everybody else backs out and says, no way. These ten guys say it's not possible. We believe them. It's not possible. They choose at Kadesh Barnea, at this decision point, what are they going to do? Are they going to go into the land? Or are they going to be cowards and not trust God and believe God and his, is faithful and will do what he says he's going to do? And so at this decision point, they make a bad decision. And a journey that should have only taken 11 days before they entered into the promised land, now takes what? 40 years. One year for every day the spies were gone. And God says to them, at that point, none of you over the age of 20 will enter into the promised land. Your kids will go, but you won't go. You're all going to be dead, and you're just going to live the rest of your life out in the wilderness. I'll take care of you, I'll provide for you, but you're not going to get to experience the promised land. Only Caleb and Joshua. All right? And so that's what happens from chapter 2, verse 1, all the way up to, uh, or sorry, chapter 1, verse 19, all the way to 46. And then we find out what happened in those 40 years, the subsequent 40 years, from chapter 2, verse 1, to chapter 3, verse 29. So it recounts kind of the, uh, the wilderness years. And then we arrive at Moab. Now, Moab is where, in our story, we're at right now. It's where the people were, where the Israel, where Moses is speaking to them. They have gotten to the point where, once again, they're just like they were at Kadesh Barnea. They have reached this decision point, this hinge point. What are they going to do? Are they going to, once again, choose not to trust God? Or are they going to trust that God will do what he says he will do and enter the land? And this is Moses, then, encouraging the people to take the land. And so this goes from chapter 4, verse 1, to 43. Each key place was a decision point. What would they do? All right? Now, these stories, these key events, invite us into the stories as well. Right? We are invited into the story as well. How do we know that? What, what, is, what is it? Is there any clues in the text? Oh, thank you for asking. Well, yes, there is. <laughs> right? There are three key words that we see that are really important in these first four chapters and really, actually, really important throughout the book of Deuteronomy. They are the words you, they are the words uh, eyes, and remember. All right? Remembering is really important. We see it in, in chapter 4, verse 10, where it says, in chapter 4, verse 10, now the New Living doesn't say remember. If you're using a different translation, it, it, the Hebrew word is remember. So just, the New Living, for whatever reason, wants to make that never forget. All right? That's fine. It works. Never forget the day when you stood before the Lord your God at Mount Sinai, where he told me, summon the people before me, and I will personally instruct them. Then they will learn to fear me as long as they live, 
and they will teach their children to fear me also. Why do we remember? What do we remember? We remember God's covenant faithfulness. That's what we are called to remember and to repeat the story and to tell the story. All right, so remember. But the other two words, like I said, how do we know that we're invited into these stories as well? That repeated use of the word you is really interesting because of what I said before. Right? Let's, let's just, um, let's see, here it is. 38 years passed from the time we first left Kadesh Barnea until we finally crossed the Zered Brook. By then, all the men old enough to fight in battle had died in the wilderness, as the Lord had vowed would happen. The Lord struck them down until they had all been eliminated from the community. So we read this story that says, you were at Mount Sinai. You were taken from Egypt and rescued from Egypt. You, you know, you were the ones at Kadesh Barnea that made the bad decision. You did this. No, they didn't. They're all dead. This is all the kids. They didn't do this. They didn't experience it. So why on earth? Moses, Moses isn't a fool. He knows that. Why is he doing that? This is where the word eyes becomes helpful. Do you know, oftentimes this phrase eyes, it speaks of more than just your physical eyes, what you look. It, 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 it speaks to an understanding, a level of understanding, of seeing, of imagining. Right? So Paul in Ephesians is going to say, he's going to pray that the eyes of the Ephesians' hearts would be opened to see the wonder and incredible goodness and grace of God. Does he just mean that, like, you know, your eyes would somehow be, like, you know, open? No. He means that they would be able to understand, to see it for what it is, to imagine the greatness and incredibleness of the grace of God. If you want to use that word, imagination, that they would be able to use their imagination to fully grasp and to understand. Okay, I think we have a similar thing going on here. <coughs> I'm going to, hopefully anybody listening to the podcast is going to hate me because there's going to be this cough. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, so what we see here is that the people are invited into stories that they did not participate in. They're invited to imagine with their eyes these stories as if they were there. And they're commanded to remember and retell these stories. It might actually be an interesting just thing. If you're a person who makes notes in your Bible, who highlights, if you're like a person like me who just, you know, you like to do things like, you know, color in your Bible. Like if that's, if that's you, all right, a good, a good thing you could do is actually go through these first four chapters. Look for you and eyes. And just mark them. You'll see how often it comes up, right? Particularly when it's talking about events that they weren't there for, right? Then you confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. No, they didn't. This is what I told you, but you would not listen. They were kids. You know, like, it's like they're invited to see the story and to, be, and to enter into the story. And again, this idea of eyes, sometimes your translation may obscure uh, this. It, like the, the New Living, actually, it was deeply frustrating as I was studying because it, it like completely skips over it. Like it doesn't use that word, eyes, um, but that's actually the word. Um, so it says things like, you have seen for yourself everything that the Lord your God has done to these two kings rather than your eyes have seen. Um, you know, all that kind of, 
You just miss the repetition is what, what you miss. But maybe, hopefully, your Bible, if you're using the New American Standard or the ESV or something, it's, it's going to pick up on those things. I didn't check the NIV, but, um, but yeah. So, so here's, my, here's my aside for a moment. Because like I said, they're commanded to remember and to retell stories and to see themselves as a part of things that they did not participate in. What's going on here? All right. I know, I know we did like treaties, okay, but now we need to talk just for a second about the idea of collective memory. Cultures use collective memory as a way to make you feel like you are a part of a group. All cultures do it, right? You think, you think about in, in Ireland, right? We have those stories that are passed down that help us to, to feel that we are a part of, of the history of, of Ireland. You know, okay, I'm not Irish, I, I get it. But like, I assume, you know, like stories like, okay, you hear about St. Patrick, or you hear about Wolf Tone, or you hear about the famine, or you hear, uh, you know, about the Easter Rising, or the Civil War. All of these, you're told stories from them. You're, you're brought into the experience. Even me, for recent, you know, more recent, I wasn't here for most of the Celtic Tiger, but you hear stories, you're brought in. You're saying, this is what we did, right? We, as a people, collectively, this is what we did. Or, you know, during the famine, this happened to us. You know, like, it's, it's this idea of collective memory. We're invited into these stories to see ourselves as part of the bigger story. This is who we are. This is what we're uh, a part of. You know, I think America has plenty of those sorts of stories that surround the founding of America. A lot of times these stories are, are founding stories to help us to see ourselves as part of this group of people as, you know, for me, as American, or for you, you know, maybe as, as Irish, or, you know, whatever, whatever it may be. Right? And we do this even as families. Okay? Think of even like collective memory as families. Uh, my, my grandfather was one of the greatest storytellers I've ever met in my entire life. Um, he could put me completely to shame. Um, and like he told all of these stories. I heard them from the time I was a kid about our family. Family stories about things when he was a kid. Or the fact that like my great-great-great-grandma didn't have any teeth, but she could still eat an apple. You know, like all of these things, like, right? Like I was like invited into these, you know, into these stories. They're my stories. They're a part of me. They're a part of who I am. I am Stephen Walton. My, my family is the Walton family, right? I was invited into these stories. They become a part of who I am, right? And my dad passed on many of those stories, whether from his childhood or ones my grandpa told him, or like, you know, like all these, like it just gets passed down, and I'll pass those stories down onto my kids and, and things. And so this idea of collective memory, this is what we need to see. They're in, like Moses is inviting future generations to see themselves as part of the story. Okay? So Moses is inviting us into the story. In Deuteronomy 31, in fact, Moses commands a regular reading of this sermon to invite these future generations to remember and recommit. Is there in chapter 4 at the end, um, sorry, is it at the end of chapter 4? Where am I at? Yeah, sorry, chapter 4. Verse 25, he says, in the future, when you have children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time. In verse 30, in the distant future, when you are suffering all of these things, right? It's this invitation to future generations to see themselves as part of the story. And so we are invited into the story. We're encouraged to know the story. We're encouraged to imagine ourselves in it and to tell this story to others. It's the story of God's kindness. 
It's the story of God's patience. It's the story of God's faithfulness to his people. And so in Deuteronomy chapter, chapters 1 to 4, we remember the past. We remember, as, as for us now, we remember the past. We remember God's love to past generations. We remember God's covenant with them. We remember the sins of past generations, as well as remembering God's faithfulness to them anyway. We remember God's call to covenant renewal and his promise of a new Eden. We remember in order to see ourselves in the story. I think Deuteronomy finds its fullest and greatest fulfillment in Christ. We see God's faithfulness and we remember God's faithfulness to us and our welcome into God's covenant people. That you and I, God has welcomed us into his family to be his people, not because we're such wonderful people, but simply by his grace. We remember God's new covenant that through the incarnation, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, our entrance into God's covenant, right? If we read, you know, we read for many weeks, Mark chapter 14, every time we take communion, right? This is my blood spilled for you so that you may be a part of a new covenant, the covenant. It's the covenant that I'm making with my people, right? The new covenant. As we, and we identify then with Christ. We have our own you know, Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai moment where we identify with Christ. We put our hands up and we say, yes, I am going to follow Jesus. And we make that covenant with him. We enter into that covenant with him. We identify with Christ in baptism, right? That, I mean, that's like one of the clearest things we see in baptism, right? That God, like, he wants to have relationship with us. He wants us to be in covenant with him. And we commit to that. And so we put our hands up. We say, yes, I identify with God. I am intertwining my life with him. And so we each have our own Mount Sinai moment in our lives. We remember, though, too, our failure to trust God's faithfulness and love. We have our own Kadesh Barnea moments too. All of us. We have moments of doubt. We have moments where we can look back on and say, I did not trust God the way I should have. We all have those moments. And while there may have been even some discipline in those moments, we still, I think, can look on the other side and experience God's goodness, his grace from the other side of that, saying he still cared for me and loved me anyway. We think uh, of 2 Timothy Chapter 2, verse 13, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. We remember our failure to trust God's faithfulness and love, and yet we remember God's continued faithfulness and love. But here's the thing, just like the people of Israel, we have our own Mount Sinai moments, we have our own Kadesh Barnea moments. But we also have these moments, these, these Moab moments, where we stand and we have a decision to make. What am I going to do? Who am I going to be? Am I going to trust God? Or am I going to just fall back on another Kadesh Barnea moment? Like, what am I going to do? We have these points of decision that say, I need to decide what I'm going to do. Am I going to take that, 
that step of faith and trust what God has for me? Or am I going to say, no way, that's too big, too difficult, I'm, no thank you. We'll just hang out in the desert, you know, or we'll go back to Egypt, we'll go back to slavery. What are we going to do? We remember how Christ bids us to come and die to our own selfish ways and to come and find life, right? John 10.10, 10, we've said that a million times in church, right? I have come to bring life and life to the full or life abundantly. We trust that we can live with him now and someday we will live with him in the land he has promised. We take that step of saying, I am choosing to walk towards God, to trust what he has for me. And I think even in church, every Sunday as we meet together, we have these, you know, I guess, Moab moments. <laughs> I don't think, sorry, that just sounds really corny to me, but at the same time, like, I think communion is a gift of God. You know, God gave the people of Israel these, these moments, right? Mount Sinai. He gave them these, these rituals that we'll get into later. Like next week, right? We're going to talk about worship, okay? And the things that we do in, in worship and what they do to us, right? But I think there is no better thing that we do that, that demonstrates and shows us, reminds us of God's incredible grace, of God's incredible love that brings us to that hinge point that says, what are we going to do? That when we take the juice and the cracker, we are making a decision saying, am I going to choose to trust God and his faithfulness? We remember, we stand at this point of decision. What will we do? <coughs> what will we decide? Will it be to trust Christ and to renew our covenant with him? Or will we choose to trust in ourselves and not in God? We're about to take communion. And so this is a decision that each one of us takes, right? This is a decision that each one of us takes, that, one of us, that each one of us does, but we do it together. We don't do it alone. And I think that's one of the things too. This decision point that the people of Israel were at was not just for each individual person. Yes, they had to put up their hand and say, we trust, but they weren't alone. They did it together as a group. And you and I, we make that decision together. We don't make that commitment alone. We decide together. We as a group are going to follow Jesus. You don't have to do this alone. Your, your faith journey into the promised land or however we want to say that is not alone. It's with a group of people and we're reminded of that too at communion. So it's a decision that each one of us takes and one that starts by accepting God's gracious love in Christ and committing to a life with him. But for those of us that have done that, they've had that Mount Sinai moment, this is where we choose to trust God once again. We repent of our Kadesh Barnea moments and choose again to trust Christ. I finish, and I know it's been not the shortest sermon you've probably ever heard, um, but with what I think is a really, really powerful lyric. You know, I was thinking, so this morning, one of the things that we do is we, we sing a hymn um, every Sunday morning before, before church. It's just like a family tradition that our kids don't necessarily love, but they still have to do it anyway. Um, <laughs> You know, there are things, yeah, it's good for them. Um, builds character. 
And, uh, but this morning we, we sang, Come Thou Fount. And I'm, in the third verse of Come Thou Fount, the first half of the third verse reads like this. O oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind thy wondering heart to thee. You and I make that decision to trust God. And we pray, God, we, we choose to bind our hearts, to intertwine our hearts with God in covenant. To trust once again that he is who he says he is and that he wants us to know him and invites us to know and to enjoy him. I said this earlier, God's covenant is not one of fear and slavery, but of love and freedom. And because of God's love in Christ, we are grafted in and we choose to bind our hearts to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you invite us to know you. God, that you desire to be known. That you are not hidden, but God, you are present. That you are with us. God, even in our failures, God, even in, in our sin. You are not done with us, God. Continue to walk with us.